Here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to the now. To the now. Now, here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Welcome to Slow Learners, a podcast about Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. This is episode one, covering part one, chapters one through nine. Memories of not so long ago, the damage caused by Hitler's last secret weapon, V2, hurled on London in the last desperate months before Germany's final defeat. Today, at Cuxhaven, the V2 is still being fired by Germans, but this time directed by British science. Rainbow opens, as most novels do, I guess, with its opening lines. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to now. These are as iconic as any in the English language, and they set the tone for what follows. They're sinister and kind of foreboding and tangled in contradiction. I mean, if something has happened before, how can it be without compare? Anyway. The screaming being described comes from a V-2 rocket which is being heard, or perhaps imagined or dreamt, by Pirate Prentice, who awakens from a dream in which London is being evacuated. So we are in London, England, in the last months of World War II. Pirate prepares a banana breakfast for his friend, Osby Feel. Pirate also, we learn, possesses the rare ability to, quote, get inside the fantasies of others. Pirate is told that a recent rocket strike has a message for him. We meet a crew of other military characters, like Teddy Bloat and Tantivy Mucker Maffick, and we hear of a young American lieutenant named Tyrone Slothrop. Slothrop will emerge as the closest thing Gravity's Rainbow really has to a protagonist or a hero, and for what it's worth, I do believe that he is a truly heroic figure, for reasons we'll discuss. Most of these men are, at the book's outset, working for secret allied organizations, including one called Achtung. Teddy Bloat heads to the Actung office and snaps photos of a map, upon which Slothrop has marked location of his many sexual escapades in London. Then we meet Slothrop in person. He's a bit of a jaded drunk, and he's a prodigious sex-haver who has basically stopped caring about the war and all of its grand political and ideological tensions, preferring instead to just kind of hang around. He's investigating a V-2 bombing site. He meets Pirate Prentice, who has arrived to recover the message. We then head to a seance and meet a slew of other new characters, notably Jessica Swanlake, a British Army women's auxiliary recruit, and her beau, a statistician named Roger Mexico. Roger is pretty much cuckolding Jessica's fiancé, a fellow named Jeremy Beaver. Their doomed star-crossed romance will add some lovey-dovey texture to the novel going forward. Some characters who will play a bigger role later on, including Peter, Sasha, and Carol Eventier, also appear. Mexico and Prentice talk about the White Visitation, which is always in quotes for some reason, a former mental asylum now housing a menagerie of various secret government projects. The place is overseen by Edward Ned Pointsman, a Pavlovian behaviorist whose obsession with cause and effect has led to a keen interest in Slothrop. Why? Oh, right. It's because he believes that Slothrop's erections are somehow able to predict the sites of Nazi V2 attacks because the map of Slothrop's sexcapades matches perfectly with a map of such attacks. Pointsman is exerting more control over the white visitation and gripes about the meddling of a man named Pudding. For Pointsman, the war itself is an open-air lab experiment, and Slothrop is the most important lab subject. We learn that Slothrop, as a boy, was experimented on by an eccentric, or insane, chemist named Dr. Laszlo Jamf. We end this section with logical-minded Roger Mexico laying in bed with Jessica. He rails against men like Pointsman and Prentice and basically everyone around him who he considers to be an ideologue or an idiot as he lays in bed with his lover, bombs fall all around him. Mm, very nice. 
Well, anyway, I think let's get into our little chat about this section, John. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, John, just to start off, I wanted to ask you, Pirate Prentice, who is he and why does the novel open with him? Yeah, so Pirate Prentice works for the Special Operations Executive, uh, also known as The Firm, which is uh, one of the many sort of pseudo or extra governmental agencies that appears in the novel, not to be confused with The Firm, the rap. Uh, <laughs> or the John Grisham. <laughs> well, closer to that, probably. Um, as to why the novel opens with him, uh, okay, I have a couple thoughts on this. For one thing, it is, I guess, kind of well known that, like, uh, Pinchon was obsessed with Ulysses, and when he was writing Gravity's Rainbow, uh, he wanted it to sort of be some sort of spiritual successor to Ulysses. I've even heard stories that he was, like, uh, totally preoccupied with the fact that the book be exactly as many pages as Ulysses. I think this idea of, like, opening with a seemingly incidental character is maybe just this little nod to Ulysses. That said, Pirate does play a bigger role uh, in the novel, especially later on. And I also think the reason he's opening with Pirate, which is something that the summary kind of skims over because it's very tricky to get into, but we can talk about it now, is that whole thing about how he's able to get inside the fantasies of others. We see an example of that where he can basically inhabit the dream lives of people and sort of float from one person's point of view to another. And then even within those sort of interior consciousnesses float to other points of view. And what I think is happening is that he's telling you that this is how the novel works. And if you have a hard time getting into this novel, it's because you have to kind of understand these little moves and flows. Like a chapter will open to a character, they might remember something, and then within that reminiscence, it'll shift to the interiority of that character, and then to another person within that reminiscence, and then to something in their life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the perspective of the novel or the novel's own kind of consciousness, if you want to get super heady about it, is almost this kind of like thread that goes between all these kind of different minds and pirate literally has the ability to see the world like this. So I think that opening the novel with a sort of lengthy description of this ability is kind of a thing where Pinchon is telling you without telling you that this is how you read this book. Well, one of the fantasies we get through pirate apprentice is this adenoid, the giant adenoid. Yeah. What do you think? It's, it's a, it's a giant blob that starts to subsume a portion of London. Yeah. And is eventually quelled. by injection of cocaine. Yeah, so I think that, like, there's a lot of stuff being set up here. I mean, there's the role that drugs play in the novel in one way or the other. But there's also another thing that he's doing, which is suggesting that even though the ostensible setting of this book is, like, it starts in fall to winter 1944, I guess, that it's drawing from a kind of visual and thematic and literary and filmic vocabulary that, is much more in the present, meaning the present at the time that he was writing. Yes. So an image, the direct fallout from the countercultural movement. Yeah, and like the giant adenoid, like that whole section kind of evokes like a 1950s drive-in monster movie or something like that. So even though this is a novel set largely during the Second World War and its immediate aftermath, it's very much a novel of I guess the 60s counterculture and the long 60s and everything from like its drug references to yeah, images like the giant adenoid is showing that like the cards in Pynchon's deck are coming from, I guess, all over the place. The tarot cards. Do you think there's any like actual reason why the countercultural movement would be better explored through this strange end of war couple month period of nineteen forty four into nineteen forty five? Or do you think that's a decision Pynchon made arbitrarily that he sort of made work? Um, well, interestingly, I think in fiction at the time, it was kind of topical. Like, what's that movie? There's that World War II movie, Kelly's Heroes, where Donald Sutherland yeah, plays yeah. kind of like a stoner hippie in World War II. Right. So there was something about that. I also think that, like, Pinchon, as a writer of historical fiction, which I think I guess he kind of falls into the category, Definitely. he very much has this notion that uh, there aren't these kind of clean breaks and beginnings and ends, and that anything that was happening at the time that he was writing it, uh, the book has origins in times before it, right? Yeah. I also think that, you know, and we have to kind of put ourselves back in that place, but when you're revolting or rejecting that kind of greatest generation narrative, I think it's kind of interesting to be like, well, no, the people serving in World War II, even on, quote, the good side, weren't all, like, noble heroes. They were, like, 
scumbags and druggies and paranoid freaks right. and weirdos and you know perverts and that stuff. Yeah. So I think that is part of the project that the book is. Yeah, I mean, I think one of Pynchon's overall project is deconstructing American myths. You know, of the history of America and what better place to start than World War II. Yeah, and like the history of Germany, for that matter, in this book. Yeah. Okay, speaking of Germany, we have this term, Achtung, which is a sort of agency, right? Yes. Can you, I have no, I, I think anyone reading this will be bewildered when they first encounter that term. Achtung, baby, the U2 <laughs> album, baby. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, Achtung in German just means like cease or stop or halt. Mm. Uh, but the, it's an acronym, like so many things in this book, for Allied Clearinghouse Technical Units Number Germany. <laughs> uh, so basically, they are a group engaged with uh, anti-German intelligence operations. Okay, do you want to tell us a bit more about Tentative Mucker Mafic and Tyrone Slother? I mean, we encounter characters and then they just sort of float away. I'm not sure if we're supposed to like really know who they are until they play bigger roles much later, but we get Mucker Mafic and Slothrop first. Yeah. So the and Tentative Mucker Mafic will appear he and Teddy, I think, are like two sort of unproblematic good guys in the yeah. book. Uh, they sort of, while Tantivy works with Slothrop at Actung, and they're very much aware of this idea that Slothrop is kind of this pawn or this stooge or idiot that people are going to weaponize in their various schemes, but they are <laughs> schemes, <laughs> schemes uh, but they are at the same time kind of protective of him, especially in the second section of the book. When we get there, we'll see that they're sort of his minders. Uh, and, I guess you could say that they are in on these schemes in the sense that they know how Slothrop is being used, but they are also kind of sensitive to the fact that Slothrop is a human being and also very, like, admiring of his character as a person. Right. So long story short, this cast of characters we're encountering are all, to certain degrees, military intelligence Yeah, they're, in, they're intelligence o- operatives, we would say. And, like, you know, they're not on the front lines battling, but they're, right. like, they're, you know, they're examining uh, V2 rocket strikes. They're trying to, like, create counterintelligence operations, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I think that's something we'll probably talk about more later, but do you have any ideas about why Pynchon would be more interested in intelligence than actual military uh, operations? Y- yeah, because I think a big part, a big theme in this novel is the way in which these sort of ostensible capital H historical differences between the Axis and the Allies were totally dissolved uh, during the war and especially post-war. And a big, the two big ways in which that is historically obvious is A, the number of Nazi rocket scientists who were given jobs in the America military industrial complex and aeronautics industry, including at Boeing, where Pinchon himself worked, and also in the CIA, which did not yet exist at the time. It was called the OSS. Operation, wait, Office of Specialized Services? Something like that. Um, and the CIA would recruit all kinds of Nazi intelligence officers, Nazi chemists especially, uh, which is something else we'll talk about right. later on. So I think that uh, the novel sort of explores the way in which uh, during World War II, the notion of nation and ideology sort of became exchanged by a global marketplace of data and information. So it would make sense that his characters are all engaged in the process of data and information right. or misinformation. Yeah, like the, the 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 troops on the ground have very like have more pronounced nationalistic and ideological differences, but behind the scenes in this complex of actors yeah there's really no ideological it, difference yeah and like i think the troops on the ground are kind of almost like a smoke screen or they're the sort of uh the the, the coal the, in the furnace yeah the, the coal war. in the form furnace or you know the tip of the spear however you want to describe it like they're the thing that you put on tv to create a narrative of how the war was unfolding but really to pinch on what is interesting about the war is happening in fucking boring offices in london yeah for sure Okay, so let's move on to Slothroop. Uh, what's this idea of, like, orgasm as prophecy? <laughs> I don't know. That's your idea. Why don't you tell me what you mean? Well, I think, I mean, Penis I'm is asking, like, why do you think Pynchon makes the choice to have sex be this sort of unlocking key into the future? Um, well... First of all, that so this idea that okay, his uh, erections or orgasms match perfectly with this map of rocket strikes, it's like such a good hook, right? Because in this 
economy of information exchange, it creates this very clear idea that there's there must be some relation between these things. Yeah. If these things match perfectly, they have to be related. This is what obsesses pointsmen. How could this be? There, It has to be relation. This can help me understand this almost Laplacian demon style determinacy of everything that can happen in the universe. I can, I can project the entire future by understanding this chain of cause and effect. Right. But it also seems to like weirdly reverse cause and effect. Like, you know, well, I think the myth of cause and effect is another thing Pynchon is going to deconstruct as the novel goes on. I also think with like Slothrop's dick and the rockets, and this is kind of an easy answer, but I do think it's very like Pynchon-esque mm-hmm. to take like kind of a glib joke that like rockets are yeah, phallic. A typical Freudian. Yeah. Compensating uh, for something. Yeah. And like use that to unravel the entire history of the last century. Right. Do you want to give us a little bit about Slav's family roots? We go into his family history in this section a little bit. Yeah. Um, why do you think Pynchon does that and what's important about it? So uh, they are this kind of like fictional family that reoccurs in a couple of um, Pynchon's writings. And uh, Slothrop's earliest ancestor, I believe William Slothrop, is this kind of uh, colonial era heretic. Uh, who kind of came over with Mayflower people and settled this region uh, and was eventually exiled back to Britain because of his heretical take on Calvinism, where he suggests that anyone could be saved by the grace of God and not just the elite whose salvation had been predetermined. Now, this basically same thing, as I believe we talked about in the intro episode, happened to Pynchon's own great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Uh, so yeah, Slothrop's history is very tied up with uh, Pynchon's own personal history. I don't think that he's like an authorial stand-in, whatever that even fucking means. Like in the same way that Stephen Daedalus in Portrait of the Artist is right, supposed right. to be in quotes James yeah, Slothrop's Joyce. not a novelist. Yeah, but I, I do think that like there are things in Gravity's Rainbow that are very tied to Pynchon's own personal identity and feeling, and I feel that tying this to his personal history is part of that. I also think it's important to think with Slothrop that we get the sense of him in this book that he's like a dropout doper guy just goes around getting laid but he's like a harvard graduate you know uh mayflower stock blue yes. blood wasp. so high wasp high wasp so when the book uh, you know develops this distinction of the preterite and the elite or like the passed over and the 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 sort of like upper upper crust of society everything in slothrop's personal history would make him someone who would be a a, a bad guy, right? right? Uh, and I think that Slothrop's ability to resist this... He's the fail son. <laughs> yeah, well said. <laughs> Slothrop is like an ancestral fail son, the fail son of literature, arguably. <laughs> uh, but he his ability to resist not only what has been kind of scripted for him in his genealogy and background, but also by these sort of plots that are being created for him is really the kind of I think the action of the novel is the way in which he's able to sort of elude these right. schemes. And something else people often talk about in this novel is the concept of entropy. And I think there's something to that with the the way Pynchon tracks the rise and fall of the Slothrop family and where they've landed is like they're fully in entropy and Slothrop sort of represents that. that yeah, like, we can talk about that later when we get d- deeper into it. It ties in later to like, the whole scheme. Oh my god, this is jumping so far ahead. Do you think scheme is pronounced scheme? Scheme. I'm, I'm just curious. How do you say scheme? Yeah. Scheme. <laughs> Anyways, we can get into this more later, but it has to do with this guy, Lyle Bland, who's a Masonic dude who mm. basically uh, used the Slothrop's paper company to flood uh, interwar Germany with a fake currency mm. and then put the Slothrops in debt and the only way they could get out of it was by selling their son to him so that he could be <laughs> experimented on by Laszlo Jip. Mm. I don't even want Typical to Typical put... Massachusetts stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, something people will be interested about us, uh, along with Actung is Pisces, the white visitation. We get these proper nouns of whether they be organizations or programs, operations, 
Do you want to just give us a brief explanation of what Pisces is and what the white visitation is and how they're connected or not? Absolutely. And you're going to love this uh, because Pisces stands for psychological intelligence schemes <laughs> for expediting surrender. Uh, so it's another psychological warfare division, and it is housed in the white visitation. Slothrop is eventually transferred from Actung to Pisces so that he can be experimented upon. Uh, yeah, the white visitation, always in quotes, which is something I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, it's a short story. Yeah. is Or a song title. Is I think it's like one of the more literal things in the book, which is just like it's a former insane asylum where now there's government operatives who are planning plots or right. schemes uh, <laughs> that are themselves totally batshit insane. Let's just go through another couple characters we meet. We meet Roger Mexico. We meet Jessica Swanlake. We meet Ned Pointsman. I just think we should get the basic facts down. So Mexico is also an operative of military intelligence? Yes, and Mexico is a statistician. Uh, he works with uh, Pirate Prentice, and Pointsman is kind of like his boss. Yes. Uh, he's friends with pirates, although with pirates. He's a friend <laughs> of pirates, but they mention that it's in this kind of like provisional way. And Roger is this very kind of like hard-minded, logical person, and he believes that like the 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 reign of falling V2s is following something called following something called a Poisson distribution, yes. which is a way of predicting seemingly random uh incidents. So this whole idea that like Slothrib's dick is magical or some sort of like magnetic dowsing rod, mm-hmm. he thinks is just like totally ludicrous. Right. So Roger is kind of like, but in a sympathetic way, because like in Pynchon's kind of like glossary and bestiary of weirdos, someone who's as straight and logical as Roger, you, you wouldn't necessarily get a lot of sympathy, but Roger is, I think, like a very heroic character, precisely because it's so easy for people to get like looped into these kind of magical thinking systems. Yeah. And he's just like, no. Well, I'm- I think like to not to be a spoiler, but I think something Pynchon is making fun of is how you know, MK Ultra and other things like that thought they really could like supplement their military or, you know, deep state machinations through like the occult. Like, oh, we're gonna actually be able to use the occult. And, and e- even before MK Ultra, I mean the Nazis were obsessed with the occult. Right, and right. during World well, War II Well, they might have actually done some real shit. Yeah. <laughs> they stole the The Bell thing. Do you know about the Bell? No, I know that the they tried to steal the trident that Christ was <laughs> yeah, with. Did they yeah, actually yeah. do that or is that just from I, Hellboy no, or something? No, yeah, they, no but I, I know that, like, to talk about the white visitation, like, it mentions that the white visitation, they sent an antenna to broadcast, like, lunatic ravings to confuse the Nazis. Right. In World War II, the British literally hired a witch uh, to... Off- Which witch? I forget her name. I can look her up. <laughs> her name was... Sybil Leek. Okay. Sybil Leek. Sybil Leek. If that's not a pension name, I don't know what it is. Yeah, so during World War II, the British actually hired someone who was described as Britain's most famous witch. Her name was Sybil Leek, and she was hired to create uh, fake astrological readings because so many of the Nazis uh, believed in astrology that she was actually retained to create like bogus astrological charts and projections so that the Nazis would buy them. And she is famous for creating an astrological chart that was so convincing that it convinced Rudolf Hess to fly from Germany to Britain, where he was then captured. So not only were they attempting these things, but what did he think was going to happen? I, uh, he believed in astrology. Yeah, there was a there's a higher power than the Fuhrer. Um, so this is a thing that you always like with Pinchon when you scratch the surface. It's like you read this book, and you're like, oh my god, this is so stupid. This is so unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But really, a lot of the stuff that was actually happening in the real world that we inhabit was as strange, if not stranger, than yeah. things in this novel. And I think we'll get into all that later. So, John, what's the deal with between the zero and the one? Right. So Pointsman is, as Roger says, someone who can only deal in zeros and ones, meaning sort of black and whites, stone determinacy, as it's described later on. Right. Uh, Roger says that he's himself comfortable in the place between the zero and the one, which means probability, mm-hmm. which means that things don't have to be either one thing or the other, and that there are different circumstances that might determine something being closer to one thing than right. the other. So the thing about the zero and the one is like, uh, Poitzman has this kind of very Pavlovian outlook where it's like A leads to B leads to C leads to D. And Slothrop's whole sort of like boner rocket magic challenges that outlook, but it doesn't actually challenge it for 
Pointsman. Pointsman believes that he can like use this to establish a deeper, further, more expansive chain of pure causality. Right. And Roger doesn't think like that. Uh, so it's I guess it's kind of showing you that like even though I guess both are at least compared to some of the more purely uh, esoteric thinkers in the book, they have a very kind of like rigid form of thinking. Right. But Roger's form of like statistical uh, probability thinking mm-hmm. uh, is just more textured and nuanced. And in fact, like Roger talks in the book about how because he can predict rocket falls using his various distributions and statistical methods, people think that he's doing magic. And he's like, no, I'm literally just plugging numbers right. into a chart. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, it's Asher. I'm calling from the bunker where John locks me every once in a while uh, when I get on his nerves. Um, I do have the opportunity to give a little peek about our next interview. So clearly the V2 rocket plays a prominent role in the opening and unfolding of Gravity's Rainbow. So we thought we'd have someone on who could help illuminate us on the history and importance of the V2 rocket. So we talked to Jordan Bim, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Chicago. He's a space historian, which just plain sounds cool. And he studies the human and biological problems of space exploration. He's a very smart guy who tries to put space exploration and rocketry within the larger context of science and human civilization. And we had a really informative chat about the V2 rocket, Project Paperclip... Werner von Braun and Nazis teaming among us. I'm Dr. Jordan Bim. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Chicago. Uh, I'm a space historian and I study the human and biological problems of space exploration. What was or is the V2 rocket and why was it so important in the history of space exploration? The V-2 rocket was the first uh, guided liquid-fueled a ballistic missile, essentially. Uh, It was the forerunner of the IRBM and the the ICBM, which we're very familiar with. Uh, And it really was the, it provided sort of the technological basis for both the U.S. and the early Soviet space programs and still informs uh, rocket design today, actually. So I read uh, Walter Dornberger's biography. In in the intro to that, he's like, uh, you know, Mankind created the wheel by which he conquered the earth and the screw by which he was able to conquer the the sea and the air. And the next step is the V2 rocket, which will allow us to, you know, conquer the stars. You know, what accounts for this sort of thinking? You know, when I look at this, it's like, okay, it's a missile. Uh, But why was so much invested in it? Well, you know, there is nothing really inherent in these objects other than what we you know, ascribed to them. And you're correct uh, about uh, Dornberger's characterization. In fact, after the first successful launch of a V2 in uh, 1942, he gave this very impassioned speech at the Officers Club, where I think he laid out exactly that sort of technological progress narrative that you just said there, putting the rocket, you know, after the wheel and the airplane uh, and that sort of thing as well. But I think it extends beyond just technology to the human as well. That's what they are sort of interested in, in, in calling it evolution, right? So we have this sort of evolution narrative of life crawling out of the seas onto land. Uh, And then he is imagining this other sort of evolutionary apocryphal uh, shift where we go from land to space and sort of a similar sort of boundary crossing, uh, you know, really important moment in their minds, at least, uh, this sort of crossing of different sort of boundaries, uh, you know, from the sea to the earth to the stratosphere and beyond. Now, when I read Dornberger's book, like I said, I felt like, you know, consider the source, right? This guy was a Nazi weapons scientist at the end of the day. But he talks about these things in such highfalutin terms. I mean, how true is this? Like that these guys like Dornberger or Werner von Braun, that they really believed that these missile programs were tied to these almost like transcendental evolutionary aims. That's a good question. And, you know, as historians, you can never really get inside the minds of your subjects. You only can sort of look at the traces that they leave us and sort of their their careers as well. So you're right that they do sort of come off as as being uh, really enthusiastic about technology in these terms. Uh, And you can look and sort of see the the trajectories of their careers. Like they're very dedicated to this technology from the amateur rocket clubs to working for the Third Reich to following that through all the way to the United States and staying there for a 
long periods of time. So you can see they are, you know, genuinely passionate about this, but when they put it in terms like these sort of mystical things, you kind of have to ask the question of whether or not they're just using that to sort of mask their true motives, uh, you know, whether they're using that to sort of naturalize what is a cultural practice of developing these different technologies. Um, you know, you have to ask those questions and we, we can't really answer them, but we can kind of say that like probably <laughs> they, they were very interested in these technologies because they made them seem special. It made them seem like they were connected to something absolutely new, something that would allow humans to cross boundaries we never had before. So there is a certain uh, personal prestige along with national prestige uh, that these projects played into, um, you know, and I think sometimes the appeals to sort of nature and evolution or mysticism and supernatural stuff kind of masks those sort of, you know, actual motive. I guess you don't just want to say, you come home from work, hey, honey, what's your job? Oh, you know, I send rockets overseas and blow up British people. That doesn't sound good. Uh, but saying I'm at the forefront of an apocal evolutionary shift in man's relationship to technology, that sounds a lot better, I guess. Um, it does. But- and it also helps people understand something that's new and unfamiliar, right? Like people didn't really understand the rocket, like not even really until like the launch of Sputnik. So, uh, you know, putting it in these terms is a convincing method, is a way to get people to pay attention to you and take take you seriously when the stuff that you were working on might not otherwise uh, be given a second look. Can you kind of tell me about how these rockets were made? I mean, if you want to talk about people sort of turning a blind eye to certain things, if they even care about them at all. Uh, You know, I was reading that they used slave labor to build these rockets. To what extent did they kind of just like fit in with what you would call a sort of naturalized system of Nazi production? It's really important to remember that the V-2 rocket was the first human-made object to reach space altitudes. Not a lot of people associate that with the V-2 rockets. We think of Sputnik and the, the launch of, of the dawn of the space age, but it was the V-2 rocket in 1942, October 3rd, 1942, became the first human-made object to reach a space altitude. And that spacecraft that that rocket was made by slave labor and that that point is is really lost on a lot of people who just have this sort of casual fascination uh, and utopian vision of space of space exploration um and so you're right there slave labor was used both at pinamunde which was the uh the development site for the v2 rocket on the baltic coast on the north of germany uh that was bombed in 1943 after the first successful test launches after that uh bombing raid they moved the production of the v2 rockets underground to a mountain facility um, in uh, near Nordhausen called Mittelwerk. And uh, that was um, just a hellish place uh, where thousands and thousands of concentration camp prisoners sourced from the nearby uh, Dora Mittelbau concentration camp were essentially worked to death or summarily executed. Uh, there, are, there are just horrific accounts of what it was like to work in this place. And uh, it honestly sounds like Dante's Inferno or something like that. Like um, people were being hung on a regular basis in front of other workers as examples. People were being starved to death. More, more people were killed making the V-2 rocket than were actually killed by it as a weapon of war. So its production was more deadly than its actual efficacy as a, as a weapon. Wow. I mean, this is one of those cognitive dissonance thing. Again, I don't even know if cognitive dissonance is the right word, but even when you hear about like, uh, quote, the conquest of the Americas, where there there's an almost sort of like conservative historian view where it's like, well, if you want to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. I mean, do, do people kind of rationalize these early days of rocketry in the space program in the same way? Or is it just something that's really not talked about that often? It depends on where you go. So uh, if you go four hours north from Berlin and actually visit uh, Pinamunde, you will find there is a massive museum there on, on the site of the old development uh, plant. Um, it's it's called the Historical and Technical Museum. It is inside the old power station of, of the development site. It is beautiful. It has been uh, restored um, with this sort of brick and beam glass architecture that incorporates elements of the old power station. Uh, and as you walk through, you get this really vivid history of the development of the V2 rocket, Werner von Braun, what inspired him. You see elements of the different rockets and that sort of thing. Uh, You do not see any celebration of what happened there. It is a very sober, very sort of post-war German look at this stuff. If you go to the gift shop, you will not find anything, like you'll not find any model rockets. You will not find any lighters with a V2 on it. Uh, All you will find are like books about sort of the, the reckoning with this. 
where the cult of Von Braun still survives is in Huntsville, Alabama. If you go to Huntsville, Alabama, you will find a civic center that seats 10,000 people called the Von Braun Center. Uh, and I, I visited this place. I think it's the only building in the world that's named after a Nazi SS officer. Uh, and I imagine the ghosts of Dora Middlebow taking up those seats because the 10,000 person capacity is in the ballpark of the number of slave laborers who died making the V2 rockets. You know, Gravity's Rainbow opens with a, a V2 strike or a character dreaming of a V2 strike. And there's this mention that when the rocket explodes, it's already too late. You don't hear it coming. And it's almost this shuffling of cause and effect where the result of something happens before the ostensible uh, premonition of it. Um, can you kind of tell me about that? That, you know, the first of all, breaking the sound barrier, A, how that kind of works in a basic sense, and why that. That uh, breaking of the sound barrier was seen as being so revolutionary. So we are used today uh, to air, like supersonic aircraft breaking the sound barrier. We've we've all kind of seen videos at least, or maybe even heard a sonic boom uh, ourselves. But essentially, the the V two rocket is traveling faster uh, than than sound itself. So it's going to reach its destination uh, before that sonic boom uh, reaches there as well. So that was part of sort of the terror aspect of this weapon. Uh, you know, this weapon was actually not very efficacious, as I mentioned before. In in the grand scheme of things, Walter Dornberger uh, early on kind of saw that. Uh, and he saw it as most effective as a terror weapon for this very reason, that it would be mysterious. It would be this mysterious object that rained from the sky. It would not make sense to the people that it rained down upon. It wouldn't make sense as a sort of like linear Newtonian timed object. Uh, so these rockets were not only going to transcend, uh, you know, the sphere of the earth into outer space. They were going to sort of transcend uh, our normal understanding of everyday physics. Uh, and, you know, I think if it wasn't for the, the atomic bomb, obviously the end of World War II, which also sort of did that as well. Uh, you know, we'd be sp focused more on sort of these aspects of the V2. But of course, uh, the atomic bomb, uh, you know, uh, dropped on uh, Japan twice, uh, you know, also did that sort of um, uh, uh, just sort of like accessing these parts of reality that didn't seem accessible and that sort of confuse or confound the sort of regular everyday notions of, of reality. It's interesting because in Gravity's Rainbow, I feel that like Pinchon, I mean, he, they talk about the atomic bomb towards the end, but really it's a novel written under the threat of nuclear global apocalypse. But I think it's telling that he, the object he uses to depict this threat of permanent apocalypse is not the atomic bomb, but the V2, right? It's almost like from the V2, everything that happened with the atomic bomb was just kind of an inevitable consequence. This was the real sort of shift. And I mean, you, you put those two together and you get uh, you get the Cold War, right? You get the, uh, you know, the ICBM with a nuclear warhead. So, you know, I think it, it all kind of fit, fits together uh, in, in that sense. But um, yeah, it was this sort of terrifying weapon. And for the first few weeks that they were that they were launched against London, um, you know, no one knew what was going on except for people in, in very high up in the government. And they didn't tell the public what was actually happening for a number of weeks uh, until Churchill finally did announce, OK, we've been under rocket attack for the last few weeks to kind of, you know, let it like it wasn't clear what was happening because these weapons were so mysterious. Oh, wow. So people must have thought it was just kind of random explosions or something. <laughs> yeah, like a, there, the euphemism was like a gas explosion or something like that that was used. Wow. Um, yeah, so that added to the confusion and the terror as well. I think that like to a certain stripe of person, maybe, you know, things like the space program, they're viewed as a kind of natural consequence of human and technological evolution. You know, all our creativity and scientific ingenuity and our desire to explore, they kind of coalesce at this point. Uh, but when you read about the history of the space program, which I guess you do professionally, you know that like many people involved with it were driven by forces that weren't purely scientific. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the role that mysticism played uh, in rocketry, whether it's in the Nazi space program or in, you know, Soviet cosmism or even in the early days of the USA and NASA. Sure. So uh, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who was like the Russian founder of sort of the rocket equation and, and rocketry, uh, has this famous quote of like, man cannot stay in the cradle forever. And that almost gives it sort of like a cosmic destiny attached to the rocket, uh, that it's more than just 
uh, a material invention, that it has this sort of greater purpose to take us out of the cradle. It's almost like our, our awakening or our, our, um, our, our sort of a natural progression. And I see this all the time, especially with space stuff, where they try and they try and nature our culture. They try and uh, pretend like something which is a cultural impulse and a choice is actually natural and inevitable and that we shouldn't try and fight it or we shouldn't question it. Uh, we should just sort of accept it as something that's almost like technologically deterministic. Uh, right. And we're sort of following this like uh, preordained path rather than making a series of discrete value judgments that have sort of morality attached to them. Uh, and, so and nobody is doing it. These are just things that happen. It's almost like yes. the shifting of tectonic plates. No one's pressing the buttons. It's just, you know, the spirit of humanity animated towards its inevitable direction. Yeah, it really takes the agency uh, away from us. And yeah, we still have that sort of myth of the of the singular inventor as well. So there's a bit of a, a, con a contradiction there. Um, but it, but in terms of like mysticism, uh, you know, von, von Braun himself, like he was he was a Christian. Uh, he did believe he personally wanted to go to space. That was his dream. Uh, you know, there are photos of him in spacesuits when he worked at NASA. That dream lived for a very long time. He wanted to be the first human to step foot on the moon. He wanted to essentially be Neil Armstrong. Uh, and after the Apollo program, he still held on to this dream that he would perhaps be able to fly to a space shuttle uh, to the space station. Sorry, on board a space shuttle. Um, so he really, really did want to go to space, and he believed that in space. He would see evidence of the of, of the creator. He, he talks about the hand, the hand of the maker uh, being out there amongst the stars. And when he's talking about the, the early ideas for what became the Hubble Space Telescope, he he said that 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 uh, instrument would be able to, to see the hand of the maker. So there is this sort of idea of um, the old cosmos, the old heavens and the new heavens. So this idea of uh, of what is beyond the earth in the sky as a, a special realm, a realm where um, other beings live that have heightened intelligence and heightened powers and if man can go there too and or not just any man but certain men if you're <laughs> Werner von Braun uh, then that could lead to a certain uplift or perhaps a certain meeting of the cosmic minds or some some sort of cosmic um uh, um, uh, destiny fulfilled, uh, and then of course in the U.S. we have we have the case uh, of Jack Parsons, uh, who was instrumental in the founding of NASA's uh, JPL. Of course, it wasn't NASA's uh, at that point because NASA wasn't founded yet. Uh, but he was uh, deeply into the occult and mysticism as well. And for him, it wasn't just uh, you know the, the rocket was was sort of this idea for him. He was designing rockets uh, for the U.S. Army uh, in early World War II, and uh, it wasn't just that the rocket would take you to places that were inaccessible in the natural world, it was that magic could take you to places that were inaccessible to the supernatural world as well. So he was sort of obsessed with breaking these boundaries and moving beyond sort of what the expected limits of human experience were, whether it was through technology or whether it was uh, through magic. And, and there was this sort of meeting and synergy between the promise of those two acts. Yeah, Jack Parsons, I know, used to briefly room with L. Ron Hubbard, and they would like get naked and think that they were summoning uh, witches and ancient goddesses and stuff like that. So it's the kind of thing that I always find, I guess, amusing because these guys zoom out and they have the most sort of high-minded idea of what they're doing. But if you look at it at a granular level, it's just like two naked guys hanging out in a shitty apartment together. Um, and then Elrond get... Hubbard uh, ended up with his with uh, with Parsons' girlfriend. Yeah, he yeah. stole his stole his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a movie. Uh, I guess these are the great men of history. Uh, now, you know, you mentioned uh, going to the Von Braun Museum and it being kind of an eerie experience. I wonder if you could tell me about the role that Nazi engineers and rocket scientists played in the U.S. space race and like why the hell Americans were drafting Nazis in the first place. Okay, so um, everyone thinks uh, of Operation Paperclip, this uh, secretive program run by the CIA or the forerunner to the CIA, the OSS at the end of World War II. Uh, when they think of Operation Paperclip, they think of Werner von Braun, they think of the rocket team. Uh, and uh, th they were definitely the most famous uh, part of it. And von Braun was the face of sort of all of Operation Paperclip. But in fact, it was so much wider and more extensive than that. Uh, there was only, you know, 100 or 200 people in the rocket team, but there were 1,500 German scientists scientists that came over as part of Operation Paperclip, and they weren't rocket all rocket engineers. Some were uh, physiologists, medical doctors, psychologists, uh, all, all different stripes uh, of scientists, engineers, and doctors. And they went into all areas of the U.S. military, uh, the industrial complex, uh, corporations, defense contractors. As a historian of Cold War science myself, in this era, if you 
start just turning over stones, you're going to find a paperclip scientist like scurrying almost every single one. You know, they're everywhere you look uh, there. And the reason for this, you know, it wasn't just because the Soviet Union was this new ascendant enemy and we needed their expertise to like fight against the Soviet Union. It was also to deny the Soviet Union their expertise as well. So it wasn't only to gain expertise, it was to deny the expertise uh, to an enemy. Um, and, and of course, the whole name of the program, Paperclip, uh, you know, refers to the fact that these were people who had very, very, um, like, um, uh, you know, had done terrible things during the war. And the idea was that they probably shouldn't be coming over to the United States under the laws that Truman had laid out. Uh, so their biographies were sanitized. Paper clips were added uh, with new biographies that essentially would allow them to get into the United States uh, by lying, essentially, through omission about what they had or hadn't done uh, during the war. Right. Or they or they would literally rewrite their biography be like, oh, they weren't really that into Nazism. You know, they they were just kind of doing what they were told when a lot of these people like von Braun, they were ardent Nazis and members of the party. Exactly. Like von Braun joined the Nazi party. He, he joined the SS. There are so many apologists for him who like to say that he was forced to do this under duress. He came from the aristocracy who had a low view of the base Nazi folks. But like, you know, he stayed in his position for a super long time. And at the very least, he was extremely compatible with the Nazi uh, aims. And there is this sort of myth of the apolitical scientists. A lot of the scientists who came over um, as part of Operation Paperclip claimed that they were sort of apolitical and therefore not really paying attention to what was going on around them. Uh, and yet, they were military scientists, and yet they they were choosing to like uh, use their talents uh, to basically remilitarize, rearm Germany at the end of the 1920s. Many of them starting this work when the Treaty of Versailles still banned this type of thing. So you know that is a political act. Uh, no scientist is apolitical. No one's outside of of politics and culture. And even claiming to be apolitical is itself a political stance. I mean, do you think in this Cold War era and even to now that there's almost this? Uh belief in a form of scientism, uh, this idea that science itself is the final law and that that is the arbiter. And in light of that, any sort of ideological conflict or moral matter just doesn't matter because we must be constantly pursuing scientific advancement. Yes, it's this myth that science exists outside of human culture and society and action, uh, which it doesn't. You know, science is a social act. It's a social and cultural activity. Um, and, you know, it really was this ascendant period during the Cold War when science and sort of perceived rationality uh, became ascendant. And it really hit its zenith uh, in 1960, you know, with, uh, with, uh, within the 1960s with the Apollo program. A great example is that in, um, in Time magazine, uh, 1960, their person of the year was the American scientist. So it just shows like how kind of central uh, that was to sort of everyone's thinking at that time. They, they really did. There really was this like belief that they had figured it out. Uh, and when in fact, what they were figuring out was uh, some parts of reality, but also they were seeing a lot of their own shadow and sort of dismissing that or not realizing that. But now when I look at the space race, the current contemporary 2020 space race, it almost seems to be the domain of these private capitalists, you know, the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks and the Richard Branson. What do you think that says that, A, there's an explosion of private capital uh, in space travel, and B, that these guys seem to kind of be retracing the steps or, you know, at the risk of making a crash plan, essentially doing dick measuring via rocketry? So one of the things I, I teach my students in my, my course here at the University of Chicago is that plans for the ordering of space are always plans for the ordering of Earth. Uh, and, you know, sort of what, what these uh, people are trying to achieve in space is always tied to a larger sort of political plan uh, on Earth. And, and, you know, we can kind of cast this sort of uh, broad arc of like the progression of uh, the uses and meaning of space, uh, uh, you know, in the, the time period we're talking about in the early Cold War really was about militarization. Uh, and then it became more about science and exploration uh, at, during the Apollo program. Uh, and then, of course, during the shuttle program, more scientists started to be selected as astronauts. Uh, and then today we've seen this other shift towards, um, you know, uh, uh, spaceflight being sort of for experience as a sort of tourist thing for the, the super wealthy. The one thing that's consistent is that space is sort of this elite place that only special people could, could go. Uh, you know, in, in the early days, it was elite test pilots and they became very elite scientists. And now it's like the wealthy elite and their chosen uh, companions. 
opinions. Uh, but what's interesting, but though, is like as you move through those progressions, they don't unseat the previous one. They just sort of incorporate it and build on top of it. So if you imagine, I don't know if you were paying attention to uh, the SpaceX flight about a year ago, they had this flight called Inspiration4, supposed to be the all first all civilian space flight. Um, you can look at their sort of uh, their training videos and stuff, and you can see that they had elements of all all three of those things. They had uh, they were they were often pictured wearing flight suits. They often were flying in these you know uh, military jet aircraft as their training. Uh, then they also had like a superficial sort of scientific program that they sort of carried out uh, during their their mission. Uh, it's unclear whether or not that science was really useful or whether it was just like you know if you go to Paris you see the Eiffel Tower. If you go to space you know you should do some science. Uh, this sort of cultural expectations of tourism, essentially, um, you know, but now you have the sort of uh, the, the idea of space for commercialization and, and for uh, this sort of spaceflight experience. So, uh, you know, we started off talking about the rocket in the Reich, and now we're talking about the rocket in the rich. When I look at Elon Musk, especially with his like snafus with Twitter or whatnot, um, the fact that he's building rockets to go to Mars, even though he has not done that, is used as a post facto justification of anything these people do in the present. So even having your one eye on the stars and nurturing this ambition, even in a totally lunatic way to a lot of people, signifies greatness. You know, uh, it's very it does. But, but he, I think he's also trying to do something else. I think he's through his ideas of this like million person city on Mars, you know, in like within 10 or 15 years, which I don't think is feasible at all. Like he'll be lucky to have a million people on Twitter by the end of the year. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think uh, he, he really does uh, believe that um, the nation state is sort of over and the billionaire class has this chance to seize power. And one of the fulcrums for that sort of move is to kind of do it on Mars or pretend like you're going to do it on Mars and then you do it on Earth. So he's kind of using his Mars program as a way to soften us up for plutocracy uh, and technocracy here on Earth. Another interesting thing to think about, though, is that, you know, Elon Musk's idea to send humans to Mars really is uh, also part of this arc that starts with Werner von Braun. Werner von Braun was the first high profile celebrity advocate for human missions to Mars in the 1950s. He really created that von Braun paradigm in the minds of all Americans, especially Americans who became passionate about space that like first we go to Earth orbit, then we go to the moon and then we go on to Mars. And he even wrote this book called uh, Mars Project or Das Mars Project in German, in which he imagined he builds out this very technically informed architecture of how to do that mission and send people to Mars. And what's hilarious in that book, and this is just a coincidence of history, but he, he says that the, 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 the president of the society on Mars, the, the Martians that live there, is called the Elon. Yeah. And then they <laughs> so, actually have like a, a sort of a hyperloop technology for getting around Mars. It's, uh, it's always fun to see my students uh, encounter that and be like, what? <laughs> wow. Well, Jordan, I appreciate taking the time to talk, man. You're so great. And I appreciate the invitation to come on. Thank you. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. A Nazi schmatzi, says Werner von Braun. That was a really enlightening chat about the history of the V2 rocket, about the culture of scientific inquiry being shaped by different political values, mm. and about how, you know, the dream of space travel goes all the way from... The right to the rich. Wow. I like that line. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that I can't write. Little tight little five words like that. It's all commas and M dashes over here. All right. I think we should probably leave it there. Yeah. I think people have enough to chew on for the first proper episode of Slow Learners Season 1, a podcast about gravity's rainbow. Next episode, we'll continue with part one, specifically chapters 10 through 13. And we'll also be having an exciting and edifying chat. A heart-smart conversation about military mind control with author Stephen Kinzer. He's the author of the book Poisoner in Chief, which is a biography of the chemist and CIA torturer extraordinaire, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. So until then, happy reading. See you on the other side. Get to work. Love you. Soul Learners is written and produced by Asha Dark and John Sunley in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Original music by Asha Dark and Scotty Leach. Technical support by Raina Doris. Read John's Gravity's Rainbow Guide at www.gravitysrainbowguide.com. And remember, we love you.